I'm with uh, Susan Apotion. Hi, Susan. Hi, Serge. So, how did you get to do body-mind psychotherapy? Well, I um, when I was in college, I studied psychology and dance. So I had already the interests in both the body and the mind, and and I pursued both of those interests independently. Um, through graduate school, I did, you know, graduate work in psycholinguistics and developmental psychology, and and then um, I tried with dance therapy. I I did uh, a lot of a master's degree at NYU in dance therapy. Mm-hmm. I tried to integrate them, and it didn't it didn't integrate for me. And and what really brought the two together for me was studying body mind centering. Mm-hmm. Do you know that work? Yes, uh, Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen. Yeah, mm-hmm. And um, and that, even though it's it's called body mind centering, and and there is a lot of focus on body and and how that relates to mind. There's not um, very much focus on psychology in mm-hmm. body mind centering, but still, it it was the unifying force for me that brought my study of psychology and my study of the body through body work, meditation, dance, yoga, um, dance therapy. That brought it all together for me. And so out of that, I created my work, Body Mind Psychotherapy, which on some level is, you know, an application of body mind centering to psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. So... Is there, does it make sense to talk a little bit about, in a way, what concerns body-mind centering and how um, you um, found a way to uh, to use it in psychotherapy? Mm-hmm. Well, the, what body-mind centering offers is, uh, uh, it's a mind of experiencing the body on a physiological level directly. So, um, you know, in the 70s when I was studying body-mind centering, that was a very revolutionary thing. Now we have, um, you know, Continuum does this, does a very similar thing. Many approaches to cranial sacral work is, you know, looking, you know, experiencing on a very kind of cellular level. Mm-hmm. The body, but at the time in the 70s, this was quite revolutionary. So and when you talk about um, experiencing the body, um, we're talking about sensations. Yes, and um, you know when we when we talk about the level of the cell, you know we're going even beneath the level of. There's many different ways to define sensation. Mm-hmm. Um, on a neurological level, you, you know, sensation requires a sensory nerve ending. Mm-hmm. So on a cellular level, um, there might not be a sensory nerve ending involved in an experience of the body. And then I think we're getting more into the sort of Reichian pulsing and streaming and vibrating level of sensation, mm-hmm. which I use the word sensation to include neurological sensations and um, sub-neurological sensations as well. Mm-hmm. 
So, so really, um, when you use the word, uh, it's about a way of experiencing the body. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, very much so, and and um, a kind of a deep physiological witnessing of the of the body state. Mm-hmm. So, in some ways, I think body mind psychotherapy is kind of the um, sort of the extreme body based of the body based psychotherapies. Yeah, yeah. It's much less, um, you know, I don't, we don't have a, a, a tremendous amount of detailed psychological intervention. It's more about training the therapist in a certain depth of their own experience of embodiment. Mm-hmm. So you use um, embodiment, you know, what do you mean by embodiment? Well, um, I think on on the law lo- in the largest sense, embodiment is what everything else on the planet, other than we adult humans, is doing all the time. Living in in a body and allowing the experiences of the body to directly flow out into their behavior and expression. Mm-hmm. And that's also what adult humans did for, you know, the the bulk of the history of hominids on this planet. Mm-hmm. It's only in the last less than 10,000 years that we've even begun to dissociate a little bit from our bodies and uh, use our neocortices to interfere in the embodiment practice. Yeah, yeah. So what you're saying is... Um uh, living in the body and allowing and a flow uh, as opposed to dissociating. Yes, and as opposed to cortical interruption or depre- uh, repression or um, uh, lower brain interruptions in the form of uh, neurological dissociation from trauma or, you know, all of the various reasons, even just, you know, habit. That mm-hmm. we've practiced body mind desynchronization. Yeah. So for adult humans, then the the practice of embodiment is that we actually have to begin first with our neocortex and make the decision that it would be better to have more of our behavior and expression coming from the bottom up than we currently have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the the first aspect of practicing embodiment for adult humans is a cortical decision of opening back up to that. Yeah, so in a way for the uh, neocortex to learn to get out of the way. Yes, and first to decide that that's a value. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, practicing over a number of years to shift the baseline and uh, learn how to actually do it. Mm-hmm. You know, as you and probably most of our listeners know, that's uh, an ongoing practice. Yeah, yeah. So actually, as you use the word ongoing practice, and you're somebody who's also a meditator and taught at Naropa, so what's what's the influence of um, Buddhism and meditation on your uh, practice and theory? Well, I, I think it's it's huge, and um, fundamentally, I think it can be boiled down to 
a real respect and appreciation for the present moment mm-hmm. and a willingness to um, live and act in that moment and in this case um, based on the sensations of that moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So really a way to um, uh, you had uh, the expression of not being in sync so a way of being in sync in the moment, the body mm-hmm. so how does the training that you developed help people do that? Well it's it's sort of an, um, an immersive kind of training you know we spend uh, a lot of time in body mind psychotherapy workshops and trainings doing embodiment practice which is simply a practice of feeling the sensations in the body and letting those sensations breathe, move, sound, speak, imagine, interact, however they would like to. Okay, so so what I'm hearing is a sense of curiosity and allowing mm-hmm. that exploration. Mm-hmm. And coming back to the sensations where, you know, which I think is, is a difference, let's say, from, you know, your core energetic training, mm-hmm. which was kind of, you know, my experience of core energetics. I don't know, you know, about yours, but mm-hmm. was such, was an emergent, immersion more in the emotional field, which included sensation, but, um, the emotions, dominated the sensations mm-hmm. and then perhaps in your SE training um, the sensations intentionally um, predominate over the emotions mm-hmm. and in uh, body-mind psychotherapy embodiment practice the sensations provide the baseline and they um regularly blossom into an emotional state and then that emotional state is integrated and moves through and comes back to the sensations. So I'm just trying to contextualize embodiment practice between these two mm-hmm. approaches that you you work with and you know I could do the same thing for so many different somatic approaches. You know, we're all looking at different facets of the human experience, so there's um, practices that are quite related. Yeah, so maybe it's not a bad idea if you want to just mention one or two, uh, you know, similarities and differences with practices, because people who listen come from different backgrounds, and that Mm -hmm. might help build Mm -hmm. a bridge. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, when I think about the organization that we're representing right now, the USABP, I know the the largest constituencies in the USABP are bioenergetics and Hakomi. Mm-hmm. And um, in terms of bioenergetics, I think, you, you know, I've certainly learned a lot from bioenergetics and, and been influenced by it, and as well as by the Reikian work that preceded it. And... Um, I think that the departure there from bioenergetics is quite clear in the sense that there's much more room for the client to construct their own 
um, way of working. Mm-hmm. So rather than placing the client in a particular movement or a particular emotional scenario and then letting the sensations and emotions express within that, mm-hmm. um, in body-mind psychotherapy, it's more client-centered in the sense that we begin more with what the client wants and what the client is experiencing in the, you know, in the moment of exploring what they want mm-hmm. and, um, and then letting their experience expand from there in a, in a less structured way. And when you say what the client is experiencing is, um, uh, with a focus on the sensation or the, you know, as opposed to necessarily the emotion. Well, in in my view, mm-hmm. and um, I'm always curious to hear what other people think about this, um, all sensations have some emotional tone. Mm-hmm. So it, it, in the sense that all sensations are physiology happening. You know, a sensation, you know, generally, most commonly, is a, is a group of cells doing something that... Um, there's enough of them doing it at the same time that we actually can notice it happening. Mm-hmm. And um, whatever physiological event that is has something to do with living or dying. Yep. And, and at that moment, if we're trying to live and, and this physiology is life-affirming, then the sensation has some quality of being good. You know, or if we're trying to die and these sensations are struggling against death, then the the sensations will have a feeling of feeling bad. Mm-hmm. So at the very least, sensation has some kind of tone of good or bad. Yeah. And at the most, as we all know, the sensations can be um, a direct link in a chain that leads to a full-blown primary emotion happy sad glad mad mm-hmm. afraid yeah so so um, as you pay attention and you put your focus on the sensation it's absolutely not ignoring the emotion but just a question of putting your focus on that angle on that perspective mm-hmm. on that yes. gateway yes absolutely yes and and so body mind psychotherapy does focus on the sensation um, as being more foundational and more um, uh, offering more choice than focusing on the emotion often does. Mm -hmm. So would it make sense to just get a sense of that through what happens in a session? You know, understanding no two sessions are alike, but just something that might give a sense of how you do that. Mhm. Mhm. Well, let's see. Um, on a simple level, I'm just thinking back to a session I just did today, and this person came in feeling quite dis- depressed and um, has been working with um, expressing early childhood grief and uh, and disappointment in. Um, you know, a lot of neglect in early childhood. And, and so there's a, a lot of grief there, which before 
beginning this course of therapy, um, he thought he his sadness was um, endless, and that he was a depressed person with. And when he contacted his emotions, what he would find is an endless pool of sadness. Mm. And um, it it took a lot of of very fine tuning to the emotions for him to realize that if he actually felt the emotion and stayed with it, the grief would come and it would um, peak and then it would subside. And Mm -hmm. then he would feel less depressed after expressing grief. And now um, what he just did that was um, a big step for him, I thought, was he was grieving, you know, yet another, you know, loss in the in his family system. And, uh, and I said, you know, how does that feel behind your intestines? I said, either it's going to feel great there and you just keep going with this, where there's going to be a sick feeling um, that you're not quite letting yourself feel in there. So so just to stay there for a moment, the question was, how does that feel behind your intestine? And then you gave him a menu. Yes, yes. I had to give him a menu because he just looked at me blankly Mm -hmm. (laughs) when I said that. I said, check and see, does it feel good or does it feel, uh, there's something not right here. And he said, uh, there's something not right here. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And, And then as soon as he had that awareness, then he was able to breathe and cry and move in a way that allowed um, the the back of his belly to be part of what he was doing. And he learned something there about not just crumpling into grief, but actually being able to maintain his strength and his ability to support himself mm-hmm. during the grieving process. So I want to just stay with that a little bit more, um, because, of course, to you this is very familiar territory, but mm-hmm. it seems like there's a lot of things in it that mm-hmm. uh, you know maybe would need to kind of see it in slow motion. Mm-hmm. That's that, fine, yeah. So um, the part of it is that um, at the time you asked the question, he certainly was not aware that you know there was something happening in his belly. Mm-hmm. And yes, and and normally, you know, the way that I start it is just asking, "What are you aware of in your body right now?" Mm-hmm. And then, if that doesn't yield any fruit, then I'll say, "What are you feeling?" You, you know, at the back of your belly in this case right now. Mm-hmm. And then, if that doesn't yield any fruit, I'll give a menu. Yeah, yeah. So but then there's the other possibility too that you know I was barking up the wrong tree, and I'll say sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Drop that. <laughs> what you're onto is much more important. Yeah. So then um, you know you you ask him, and he's aware of it first at a very broad level of good bad. You know, it's mm-hmm. not is is that 
kind of his first what I, what I heard you say is that his first uh, perception is this something that you know was not comfortable and then well I actually was looking at how he, he was twerking his pelvis pretty far while he was crying mm-hmm. and this is a familiar position for him and then at that point he would generally he, he often is standing when he begins to cry and then he sort of crumples to the ground and sobs um, from, you know, slightly below his diaphragm up is very active in the crying. Mm-hmm. And his lower body is pretty passive, but it's always torqued to one side. Right. And so he was standing there, and it was torquing more and more, and it really looked like, you know, as I'm saying this, my face is starting to, you know, wince. You know, mm-hmm. that feeling where you can just see, oh, that look, that feels yeah. really bad in your gut. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. So, so, so I w- gave him the menu. I right. said, check, check, how does it feel in your intestine? And he looked at me like, are you crazy? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, check and see. Either it's fine and it's, you know, what you're doing is working for it, or it feels really kind of sick back there. Right. And then immediately he said, it feels sick back there. So okay. I gave him the good bad. But so, in a way, in the first vignette, if you want, if it was a, a movie or a little video, what we mm-hmm. didn't see in that first vignette is what came before, is what you just described now, is mm-hmm. you're uh, observing your knowledge of him, uh, and you're observing the uh, body movement, and you're reacting with it both in terms of um, uh, your knowledge of the body and your own sensations and your own, um, you know, your own reactions to mm-hmm. then come to this intervention. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And that's the whole approach with body-mind psychotherapy is to train the therapist to deepen their own embodiment, to train the therapist to um, be able to recognize in their sensations Every different aspect of physiology, immune functioning, muscular functioning, neurological functioning, cellular functioning, etc., etc., and um, and from the basis of their own embodiment experience, then be able to both observe more deeply what's going on with their clients and um, generate interventive relationship out of that. Mm-hmm. So, um, what I'm hearing is um, something where there is a training in a way in terms of outside knowledge of how anatomy anatomy or neuroscience functions yes. and an inside training and some kind of maybe a calibration or a dialogue between both that, you know, outside knowledge and inside knowledge. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, at the beginning of body-mind psychotherapy training, we're forming hypotheses. We're saying, what might I, what, what aspect of, uh, physiology might I be feeling right now? Mm-hmm. And, or, and then later on to apply it in observation to say, huh, I wonder if I'm seeing, um, that person's liver become, um, overactivated or something like that. Hmm. So there is that hypothesis in a way coming from the outside, then the, mm-hmm. uh, and then you probe it. Uh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You invite the person to go more deeply into their experience and 
you know, and it might never need to be named, you know, um, as long in as long as it moves through the person in a way that helps them feel themselves more deeply and understand themselves more deeply and relate to the world in a more satisfying way, then we don't need to name these hypotheses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Occasionally it's helpful to name them. You know, it might be educational or, or useful in some other way. But um, the point is that um, the body reorganizes. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about that, the body reorganizes? In body-mind psychotherapy, we see all therapy as a developmental process. Um, you know, in basically in modern adult life, we include trauma and any arrested developmental processes as a normal part of human existence. Mm-hmm. For modern life, and that any kind of uh, developmental repair or trauma integration isn't just then rebeginning development, it's actually adds to development and becomes part of the developmental process. So, so it's the, so there's no discontinuity. It's like the the whole model includes trauma. And there's just a question of degree. Yes. Yes. Well, I think that, you know, trauma has a different physiological signature than Mm -hmm. an emotional deficit. But um, from a larger perspective, they're, um, they're, they're both part of a developmental process of modern America, modern human life. Mm -hmm. Yes. I find it very useful, and and often people are very relieved to um, shift from a pathological view to a developmental view, especially, you know, with trauma because they feel so debilitated and and there's so much shame about that debilitation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the more that we can normalize that and, you know, recognize that you know, there's there's tremendous um, epidemic level of traumatic dissociation happening in in modern cultures. Yeah, yeah. I think that's you know relieving. <laughs> yes. In a perverse sort of way. No, but also it's also something that's the opposite of de-skilling because in a way it's uh, it's an, an extreme version, something that you already know how to deal with in a yeah. in a lower dose. Yes, yes, absolutely, and something you know. I think we're realizing this in the field of traumatology that you know there are there are brief moments of dissociation, you know across such a broad spectrum of our population that um, it's almost, you know, 90, 85% of adult population has, you know, moments of dissociative experience that, you know, I think are lower brain functionings hijacking the higher brain functionings. They just happen so quickly we don't even notice them. Mm-hmm. Mhm. Yeah, so it's um 
it really integrating these kinds of traumatic experiences into that larger development framework mm-hmm. and you were talking about reorganizing in this context right yeah and and again another way of normalizing that is to recognize that humans are have the ability to develop throughout their lifespan as you know not all species have that ability mm-hmm. and um, and there are significant changes in our hormonal functioning as we all know you know throughout the lifespan there are significant neurological shifts you know one of the most uh, intriguing ones I like to mention that inspires people is is to think about how many great actors don't reach their prime until they're in their 40s because there's a significant brain change mm. Um, that allows finer degrees of facial muscle control. Hmm. So here's, you know, a positive change that yes. comes with aging. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, of course we know there are so many undocumented positive changes that come with aging if we're headed in the direction of becoming wiser, more mature humans, which... You know, I think this is also an area that Buddhism has influenced me in a lot of realizing there's quite a huge range um, that we all have access to in terms of wisdom and maturity. Mm-hmm. And uh, and these require reorganization on the most subtle levels of, of our synaptic connections as well as our cellular functioning and I was just another client I worked with today as someone who uh, has been bedridden for many years and we work on the phone and she's being um, she's in the middle of a divorce and she's being kicked out of her home and uh, it's provoking huge necessity for challenging some of her um, habits of invalidcy. Mm-hmm. How do you say that? Invalid. I'm not sure. I think I understand what you're saying, but I don't Being know. Being an invalid. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and she's really, you know, despite the fact on one level she's quite handicapped, on another level she's growing leaps and bounds in terms of wisdom and maturity. Mm. And... Uh, it's it's inspiring. So, is there a scene or a moment of that work that can give us a flavor of that We're with her? Well, I think the most significant moment that we did today was, um, you know, she's so excited that she can dress herself now. Hmm. And, um, and she said, but then... You know, somehow she segued from, well, I'm excited, but then, you know, there's the issue of work and, you know, providing for myself that comes right after that. And mm-hmm. she became, you know, a little bit disorganized and anxious and, and a little hysterical at that moment. And I said, okay, here's the moment. Because she had already identified that that, that that fearful part of her was like um, um, 
the monster and where the wild things are, you know, that mm-hmm. book. And I said, okay, here's the moment. And, she, and I said, so look at, look it straight in the eye. Breathe, feel your body. What happens? And she said, I'm looking it straight in the eye and I'm thinking, you're a big scary monster and you're going to eat me alive. Wow. <laughs> and I said, okay, keep breathing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can, you, I said, you know how to do that direction. You've done that a million times. Is there another option here? You know, keep breathing, feel your pelvis, stay in your body, keep looking at this monster of livelihood, self-support in the eye. Mm-hmm. And she did it, you know, it was very sweet. She said, she, her voice trembled, she cried, she goes, okay, you're a big scary monster, and it might not be easy, and it might not be glamorous, but I want to keep going toward life. Mm. And it was such a sweet little moment, and, you know, I had never experienced her being that courageous with that particular yeah. yeah. I can't do justice, you know, because she, she was, her voice was trembling and, you know, mm-hmm. it was a beautiful moment of human courage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, in a, in a, in a different way, I mean, what it also, uh, is, uh, makes a point about is that while your work is very centered around the body, uh, there are other aspects and other sides that you explore in a session. Mm-hmm. It's not just all the time about, um, you know, body, body, body. No, no, not at all. It's just how can your body support you to move through this developmental juncture? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so if that needs to be body, 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 it is. And if it doesn't need to be, it's not. Yeah. Um, the body-mind psychotherapist is tracking the client's body so long as life is circulating through it in a positive developmental dile- direction, then there's no reason to even mention the body. Yeah, so that's a big point. Mm-hmm. That's a big point. That that's uh, that the uh, that what's really important is that the therapist be aware of the body and tracking it, and not necessarily mentioning it moment by moment. And what I think Serge is so important around that is that the therapist is experiencing their own body moment to moment in a developmental relational living way. Yeah. And that's what I think allows us to not go body, 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 and have the interaction stay embodied. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and what I now just in our short conversation, a moment that was very powerful. You were talking about the sky and the gut feeling, and you were talking about the sense that in your own face you were feeling some of what was happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That there's always. Um, what we call in body-mind psychotherapy is circular attunement happening. I'm feeling you, feeling me, you're feeling me, feeling you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the the relational process is a very physical one. Yes. So, so in other words, uh, as we're talking about body, actually a very good way, you know, it's it it is about body, of course, but it is also very much a relational therapy. 
by way of the body as a vehicle for um, sensing and um, the life of the, the relationship. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> so as we're coming to the end, I wanted to see if there's anything, of course we haven't touched on everything, but anything that you feel might be missing or you know, just wanting to find a way to uh, to conclude this conversation. No, I don't I don't feel anything missing. I don't know if you do. I'm glad to address that. No, my sense of it was it was a very nice um, sense of what it is and um um in a way it brings curiosity for knowing more, but it makes sense that you know we couldn't address everything, but Yeah. Well, if there's a desire to know more, you know, I have two books and they're easy to find and a website and you know there's lots of avenues great great yeah. well thanks Susan this recording is part of the somatic mindfulness and relational psychotherapy podcast see the website relationalimplicit.com